All right. Well, good morning, good afternoon, whenever you're watching this, guys. I hope and pray that you've had a wonderful week and uh, looking forward to a blessed rest of the week. And I want to thank you guys for, uh, for joining or tuning in uh, to the next installment of our foundation series titled Fundamentals of the Faith of the Christian Identity or Fundamentals of the Christian Identity. Just to reiterate, guys, uh, we, we live in a world today that the word fundamental has taken on a new definition. And again, we're finding out uh, that new definitions are, are being uh, instituted uh, left, right, and center in our world today. Uh, but the word fundamental does not mean fanatic, okay? It doesn't mean fanatical. Uh, they do not equate one to another. Matter of fact, they, they hail from two different corners. Uh, fundamental simply means basics. It means the foundations. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. Uh, we know in, in CrossFit, uh, for you to, uh, you know, to join CrossFit, you've got to go through a fundamentals class or a beginner's course. That's all it is. And so what we're looking at today, last week we looked at a brief history of um, baptism, and we gave over, you know, quite a great detail of what uh, baptism is. So today I want to get into further into not only the second part of baptism, uh, but just kind of touching on these two ordinances that have been given. We have quite a bit of reading today, and uh, we will be jumping back and forth a little bit uh, in the Scripture. And uh, so, but, but we are going to answer some some questions. Guys, I hope and pray, in all fairness, um, they're a blessing to you. I trust they will be, and I trust that they will help you, okay? So, there are two ordinances that are given to the local New Testament church. They are not rituals. They are not sacraments. Um, those, that does not play a part in the New Testament church. That is not a biblical teaching, uh, the teaching of sacraments. So, the two ordinances uh, are given are baptism, as we talked about in Brief History last week, and then the Lord's Table. Uh, these ordinances are rooted and grounded in the gospel, and that's what's important for us to understand. For by partaking in them or demonstrating them, if you will, biblically, the gospel is seen. Within the action of baptism, or the obedience of baptism, I should say, you show the burial and the resurrection of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And we can say buried in the likeness of his death, raised again in the newness of life. Now, by proxy, the death of Jesus is seen as well. Because really and truly, you're not going to have a burial without uh, a death, and you don't have a resurrection without a death either. Uh, but just to, to make it clear, the Lord's table, which is the partaking of the bread and the juice, fruit juice, um, shows the Lord's death till he comes. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. So within these two ordinances that the Lord Jesus Christ gave uh, to the local church, we see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. So baptism. Baptism is for the believer and the believer only. It is by full immersion. I know we talked about that last week. Nowhere in Scripture whatsoever is uh, baptism of infants uh, stated, taught, or even remotely implied. Nowhere in Scripture is baptism by way of pouring or sprinkling um, stated, inferred to, or implied? No, not even close. Uh, they are a biblical impossibility. It's impossible for infants to voluntarily uh, express their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is required for salvation and which is required for a biblical baptism, Okay. It's impossible for infants to give a testimony of conversion, uh, which hasn't taken place. No one can give a testimony of salvation on another's behalf, okay? That's a devilish, vile, wicked teaching. 
you do not have the right, no man or woman has the right to make a public profession on behalf of someone else. That, that's, it, that's an impossibility. Uh, sprinkling, pouring, uh, in the baptism of infants, removed from baptism its biblical purpose, uh, which is the picture of faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is giving witness to a personal conversion. Okay, that's what baptism does. Baptism was never meant to lock an individual into church membership. Yes, people are baptized into the membership of the local church as believers. But as an infant, an infant cannot make those decisions. Um, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, uh, tells us, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answered and saith, um, said unto him, Suffer it now to uh, suffer it to, um, sorry, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, means he he did, he submitted to him. Verse sixteen. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus Christ put a tremendous amount of emphasis on baptism. He did not overemphasize it, but he by way did not de-emphasize it. Why do I say that? Well, it's a 60-mile one-way journey. Jesus Christ walking, by the way, that he traveled to be baptized. Uh, God the Father was delighted in his son and his baptism as much as he was, would be in anything else. If baptism was uh, allowed by way of sprinkling or pouring, why would he walk 60 miles to be baptized by his cousin John? Was it a family thing? Not at all. Uh, because Jesus Christ emphasized the importance of baptism. Uh, he emphasized three things that we're going to look at here in a, in a minute as well. But not only that, but just the mechanisms of baptism. In Matthew 28, he emphasizes again and giving us the Great Commission, verses 18 to 20. He says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the world. Amen. Jesus tells us to observe all things. Okay, one of those things is baptism. What's interesting, guys, is that in the front end of Jesus Christ's public ministry, which we see there in uh, Matthew chapter 3, and then the backside of Jesus Christ's public ministry, of which we just read in Matthew chapter 28, he both emphasizes baptism. Okay? So in the two passages of Scripture that we have read, the beginning and ending of Jesus Christ's public ministry, we understand that all power is given unto, unto Christ. Therefore, he could have emphasized anything, uh, but he chose to emphasize baptism. All right? The beginning of his public ministry was by baptism. The end of his public ministry, just before ascending on high, uh, was the commanding, the commanding of baptism. So never mistake or minimize what Christ put such a great emphasis on, guys. Many will say, well, it doesn't matter uh, if you're baptized. Others will say that, you know, it doesn't matter how or when you were baptized. And, uh, guys, the Bible will beg to differ. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, 
uh, which really, that's an oxymoron, because you can't be a Christian without being a Bible believer. We've flippantly used that word Christian, that anybody that, that attaches Jesus to their repertoire, that we call them a Christian, and that's just not so. Uh, Christianity is a lifestyle. It's not signing the document. It's not uh, a work that you have performed. It's not even your confession in Jesus Christ that makes you a Christian. It's you living the life as Christ that gives you the qualifications of being called a Christian. And uh, so, you know, the Bible begs to differ when it comes to how you're baptized, when you were baptized, and if you are baptized. Jesus Christ only had a public ministry here for three and a half years on this earth, and yet he chose to emphasize baptism on the front end and the back end. And so I believe that we should pay close attention to Christ's last and first commands. Uh, So guys, there's three viewpoints on baptism. There's three viewpoints on baptism. Two are wrong, one is correct. Some will underemphasize baptism by way uh, by saying that it's not important. Others will overemphasize baptism by saying it it's a must or a necessity for salvation. So, beloved, baptism never takes away your sins. Uh, baptism, uh, guys, salvation is in Christ. It's not in the creek somewhere. So, the third way that we're going to look at today what baptism is is we understand that baptism is a basis of obedience, which is necessary for a fruitful and joyful life in Christ. We're not looking at the Baptist way of salvation. We're looking at the Bible way of salvation. It does so happen uh, to be true that the traditional Baptist view of baptism is the, the accurate Bible way of, of baptism. So uh, Baptist distinctives are correct because they're doctrinally and biblically correct, not because they're Baptist by any stretch of the imagination. I believe that these distinctives are correct according to the Bible, greater than most. The history uh, that we, have find, we find in the Baptist doctrine is the biblical doctrine, not a denominational doctrine. Uh, there is no denominations in the Holy Scripture. Christ did not teach denominations. Those are something that have been man-created. The word Baptist uh, was only given you know, in the 16th century by the Reformers uh, because of Biblical Christians who were called Huguenots and Waldensians and all Paulicians and all this prior to that, dating all the way back to Acts chapter 11, where they were first called Christians, okay? Um, but we were called Baptists because of the phrase Anabaptist. They called us that, which means rebaptized. Those who were infant baptized into, you know, the, the wrong belief, and then later on in their adulthood, they were gloriously saved, born again. Well, they were biblically baptized, and therefore, the Reformers began to call our forefathers um, Anabaptists. So, so, guys, we're looking at doctrine. We're not looking at denomination. All the way back to Christ, through Antioch, through Antioch, Syria, all the way to Wales, to America, and around the world. The Prince of Preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, said, We believe that Baptists are the original Christians. He said, We did not commence our existence at the Reformation. We were Reformers before Luther and, or Calvin were born. We never came from the Church of Rome, for we, are, we were never in it. But we have an unbroken line of the, uh, up to the apostles themselves. We have always existed in the very days of Christ, and our principles sometimes veiled and forgotten, like a river which may travel underground for a little season, have always had honest and holy adherence, persecuted alike by the Romanists and Protestants of almost every sect. Yet there has never existed a government holding Baptist principles which persecuted others, nor I believe anybody of Baptists have held um, to put the consciences of others under the control of man. We have, he says, we have ever been ready to suffer as the martyrologies will prove. 
But we are not ready to accept any help from the state to prostitute the purity of the bride of Christ uh, to any alliance with the government. And we will never make the church, although the queen, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the despots over the consciences of men. Okay, he said that. That's from page 225, uh, volume 7 from the New Park Street pulpit. Further on, Spurgeon did say this. He said, History has hitherto been written by our enemies who never would have kept a single fact about us upon the record if they uh, could have helped it. And yet it leaks out every now and then that certain poor people called Anabaptists uh, were brought up, from, uh, brought up for condemnation. From the days of Henry II to those of Elizabeth, we hear of certain unhappy heretics who were hated of all men for the true sakes which was in them. We read of poor men and women with their garments cut short, turned out into the fields to perish in the cold, the end of others who were burnt at Newington for the crime of Anabaptism. Long before your Protestants were known of, these horrible Anabaptists, as they were unjustly called, were protesting for the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. No sooner did the visible church begin and depart from the gospel than these men arose to keep fast by the good old way. The priest and monks wished for peace and slumber, but there was always a Baptist or a lawyer tickling men's ears with holy scriptures, calling their attention to the errors of the times. They were a poor persecuted tribe. The halter was thought uh, to be too good for them. And at times, ill-written history would have us think that they died out so well. Had the wolf done his work on the sheep, yet here we are, blessed and multiplied in Newington Seas, other scenes from the Sabbath to Sabbath. He goes on to say, as I think of you, he says, if I think of your numbers and efforts, I can only say and wonder what a growth. As I think of the multitudes of our brethren in America, I may well say, what hath God wrought? Our history forbids discouragement. That's from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, 1881, volume 27, page 249. It was J. Frank Norris who recognized this in the early 1900s, when he separated himself from what we know as the convention, uh, the establishment of churches we know today to be the independent Baptists, meaning free from the convention or the assemblies. Guys, if the Baptist distinctives were contrary to biblical doctrine, uh, then I simply would not be a Baptist. It's that simple today. But many today are afraid to be labeled, and they say, well, I'm going to be a Christian. And I am a Christian, and that's fine. I am a Christian. I am Baptist by doctrine. I'm a Christian by belief in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I will always be a Bible believer first and foremost. The majority of what we know as Baptists in our area today are not uh, biblical Baptists, as you would go back to C.H. Spurgeon, as you would go back to the, the founding fathers in the Word of God. They have corrupted the ideologies and the teachings of the distinctives. They have left the, the inspiration and the clarity of the work of God, but we understand today that no matter who we are, we must stand firm, on the word of God, despite what others do. First Corinthians thirteen four says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself and it is not puffed up. We need to get a hold of that uh, a little bit more in our life, I believe, today. So now back to where we need to be. There is only one way for water baptism, okay, which is taught in the Bible. If the Bible does not teach it, I do not expect you to believe it. But if the Bible does teach it, I expect you to believe it. Furthermore, I believe you should learn it, and I believe you should obey it. Some people adjust the Bible to suit themselves. Beloved, we need to adjust ourselves to suit the Bible. So the three things that we need to see about biblical baptism, okay, biblical baptism, is we're going to look at the method, 
we're going to look at the meaning and we're going to look at the motive. All right. The method, the meaning and the motive. So number one, the method, the biblical method of baptism is by immersion. We covered that last week. The Greek word baptizo uh, means to immerse or to submerge, to make whelmed, if you will, fully wet is what that means. So beloved, in simple English, something that can be submerged and, uh, and not come back up, but be to be immersed is to completely be submerged and to come back up. That's what the word baptism or baptizo means. Uh, baptism requires a large or a great amount of water, okay? So number one, we find that baptism takes a large amount of water. So we're going to say it takes a bountiful amount, plenteous amount of water. John chapter 3 and in verse 23... John chapter 3 and verse 23, the Bible says, And John was also, John also was baptized in Enon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Okay? So, <clears throat> beloved, it would be much easier to just sprinkle folk and call it a baptism. It would be easier to do that. And in most churches, the front row would probably be baptized every Sunday. Uh, but that, that's not what it is. The excuse of sprinkling guys, um, you know, was for those that were sick or infirm, but it was rejected by every single Bible believer. Sure, it would be more convenient to be sprinkled, but baptism is not based on your convenience or ease of our operation. Convenience is not a consideration of baptism, but rather conviction uh, to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to cover that uh, in detail a little later on. Again, I reiterate, Jesus Christ traveled 60 miles on foot one way to be baptized in a bountiful amount of water. So not only do you need a bountiful amount of water to perform the method of baptism, but we also find that you need a body of water, which goes without saying. Acts chapter 8, one of the most famous scriptures that we can read and really and truly sums up what you need for baptism. Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. And we're going to look at these verses a little later on as well. Acts chapter 8, verse 36 says, And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hindereth me to be baptized? Verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Baptism is going to, it requires, baptism takes going down in the water. Just like in Matthew 3, when Christ came up out of the water, uh, he had to be in the water first to come out of the water, not bringing the water in a cup or a bowl. And again, we're going to come back to Acts chapter 8 a little later on. Uh, but under this point of uh, the body of water, baptism requires one going down uh, in the water. There's a bountiful amount of water. There's a body of water, okay? Now let's see what it represents. It represents a burial. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. I know I referenced that a little while ago. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. The Bible says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Going down in the water, uh, guys, as the proper biblical method of baptism is the picture of Christ's burial, and of course, then uh, subsequently, a picture of his resurrection as well. And so we know that. So if I die today, guys, and I, I you know, hope that I don't, but if I die today, I hope and pray that if you're going to have a funeral for me, that you're just not going to take me out here in the back lawn or out in the garden here, uh, lay me on the ground and sprinkle just a little bit of dust on me. That's not a burial. That's not a burial. I'm hoping that you're going to dig six feet down if you can get there and uh, put me in the ground and that's where it is. 
And uh, it's, it's that simple, guys. It's that simple. And uh, we need to understand that. Mark chapter 1 and uh, verses 9 through 10. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 10 says, And it came to pass uh, in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descended upon him. In Jordan, not by or around or even with Jordan, he was in it. He came out of it, and therefore he was in it. Okay, He had to be in the water in order to come out of it. So, guys, I want us to see somewhere. I want us to turn in our Bible somewhere that we can so we can find a verse, okay? Find a verse uh, that teaches sprinkling. So I'm going to give you plenty of time. And, guys, I'm being, I'm being facetious. I'm not going to waste your time. There are zero verses in the Word of God, zero verses in the Bible. Sprinkling by baptism, guys, is a creation of man. It's not in the Bible. It was not taught by God. It's not taught by Jesus Christ. It's not recorded in a purified word. It is strictly an act of man, and it does not matter uh, how, we, uh, how we turn the table. Uh, guys, we should, uh, should not partake in something that was created man and not supported by Scripture, okay? Uh, even the Roman institution, uh, you know, up until about 880 A.D., uh, believed in uh, baptism, uh, used baptism by immersion, okay? Uh, so even they, had, uh, even they had the method right uh, for a particular, uh, a particular time, even though their meaning would have been wrong. And again, I'm going to reiterate something that I spoke about last week. Uh, that word baptizo is just transliterated as opposed to being translated. And it's a re- it means to be immersed, uh, fully wound, made wet, and to come back again. Some people say, well, you know, uh, King James was, a, uh, was an Anglican. Well, Anglicans believed in sprinkling. Uh, so why in the world, if, if King James controlled it, which he did not, God controlled it, uh, but if King James controlled it, why wouldn't he use his own religion to teach uh, that I, that this, this thought on sprinkling? Well, it, he didn't. Remember, God promised to purify his word, and therefore uh, the translators obeyed God rather than man. So that's the method. Method is by immersion. Number two, the meaning, okay, of baptism. Importance of baptism is understand that the meaning and the method go together. They go hand in hand. So by destroying, guys, by destroying the method, you'll end up corrupting the meaning. And we've already talked about this, you know, last week and this week, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. Um, but Romans chapter 6, 4, as we looked at that already, that we're buried in likeness of his death, uh, you know, that we're raised again, we should walk in newness of life, and so on and so on. Uh, we understand that. We understand that it's symbolically a picture of a, of a burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Romans chapter 3, the Bible says, Know ye not that so many of us, uh, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. So there's the death. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised uh, up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we should uh, be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Like as, there's a likeness. So baptism is a likeness of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The pool, or the bountiful body of water, becomes a liquid tomb. Going under the bountiful water is the burial. Coming up out of it is the resurrection. That's what it depicts, and we're following it by obedience to Jesus Christ. So is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ important? Absolutely. I hope that you think it is important because if you don't think it's important, you're not saved and born again. That is the gospel, my friend. The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what saves a soul. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are in yet in your sins. Verse 19 says, If in this life only 
we have hope in Christ, uh, we are of all men most miserable, speaking that if he did not raise from the dead. But we know he did raise from the dead. So the devil wants you to think today that there's that baptism is really not important, that whatever meaning you have or whatever method you have, it all quantifies. But it simply does not, guys. The devil wants you to de-emphasize baptism just as much as he wants you to overemphasize it, guys, okay? The gospel message we find, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3 says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. So if baptism is a picture of the gospel, don't you understand that, that the devil would want that removed as well? Absolutely. Those who are teaching the meaning and the method incorrectly or anti-biblically, they are tools. They were working for Satan. Knowingly or unknowingly, they're working for Satan. And guys, I understand that's probably going to rub some of you the wrong way. Again, I, I submit to you, if you can bring me scripture today uh, that is contrary to what I just told you, I am an open book, open arms. You come sit down with me. Don't just get angry and say, well, I'm not going to go back to church. I'm not going to do that. That's, that's childish. Don't be child. Don't be a child. You know, be a man, be a woman. And take your scriptures and prove to me why I am wrong, or why, let me just say, it's not about me, why the scripture's wrong. So, Acts chapter 8, let's look at why uh, the meaning and the method are so vitally important for uh, baptism today. Why are they so important, and who would want them removed, okay? So, we were in Acts chapter 8 just a moment ago, and I want, I want everyone to figure this out on their own, Okay? Verse 36 through 39, and within these verses, we see the method and the meeting. Of course, we see the motive as well, which is our last point we haven't yet covered of biblical baptism. But if there's a segment of the passage that the devil would want you to remove or not to see, uh, when it comes to the meaning of baptism, wouldn't you believe one of these verses would be? Look in this right here. Verse 36 tells us in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, it says, And as they went on their way, uh, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See here in his water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, just to get you up to date, Philip was reading Isaiah chapter 53 to this eunuch. He was, uh, the eunuch had acquired a copy of Isaiah 53. He was reading about uh, in whose stripes we are healed. He was reading about the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, who would die for the sins of mankind. And he simply asked Philip, he goes, Who is he talking about, somebody else or himself? And then uh, Philip's, you know, got up in the chariot and he simply said, he started uh, speaking unto him from that very scripture. He started witnessing the Lord Jesus Christ. So after he hears all of this, essentially the gospel message, the eunuch says, look, here's some water. What's hindering me to be baptized? Why can't I be baptized? What's, what, what is the requirement for me to be baptized? That's verse 36. So look in verse 37. Philip says, and if thou believest, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right. Verse 38 clearly says, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, there's the same thing we see with Jesus. The spirit of the Lord called away Philip and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Praise God for that. What verse do you suppose today out of those verses, 36, 37, 38, 39, do you think the devil would not want you to see out of all of this? What is hindering someone from being baptized? Well, verse 37, verse 37, if he could remove one of the verses right here concerning the meaning and the method of baptism, which ones is he going to eliminate? He wants to eliminate verse 37. The devil could care less if you're baptized. He just does not want you to believe the gospel, and therefore he wants you to think that baptism has no place, no power, or position in your life. 
And it's easy to see uh, uh, who's throwing the darts at the Word of God. It's easy to see who's removing verses and adding to them and changing words here and there, especially when it comes to the meaning of salvation. No belief, no salvation. No salvation, no need of baptism. Do you understand? Again, some will say that any picture of baptism will do. But can I say this to you? If it does not look like what it is, then it's not what it was. Okay? When a person is saved, born again in the blood of Christ, they should give an open testimony of that salvation. And by immersion shows the old man being buried with Christ and a new man being raised again unto newness of life. It is the picture of a funeral, my friend. Uh, We are burying the old man with his deeds. So if you change the method, immersion, to sprinkling or whatever, you corrupt the meaning. And when when you corrupt the meaning, you remove the motive. What is our motive for being baptized? What's the purpose? Why would we do that? Well, baptism is not for salvation, okay? It is uh, is from salvation, if you will. And there are many out there today who who have the correct method, immersion, but the wrong motive because they have an incorrect meaning. Acts 2.38 is one of the prime examples. Acts 2.38 is very clear. You know, it's the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit of God falls, and Peter and them are speaking, and all men heard them in their own language. Verse 38, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of, of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, we've got to stop and go, whoa, 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 wait a second here. That just tells me right now that, uh, that I need to get baptized in order to be saved, and that doesn't say that at all. That's not even remotely what that means or even says. But there are some out there who will twist it and change the motive of baptism. Okay? This is the home run verse, and they look at that word for, but that word for does not mean um, uh, in order of. It means because of. Think about it like this. Uh, Have you ever seen somebody who uh, wept for joy or someone stole for hunger? Guys, they wasn't stealing to be hungry. They wasn't weeping to be joyous. They were stealing because they were hungry. They were weeping because they were joyful. Amen? It's that simple. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 is a very clear passage of Scripture. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there is no work, guys. I mean, Paul said in the Titus, not by work of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's Titus chapter 3, verse 5. If you were baptized for salvation, then it would be a work uh, that we must do in order to be saved. And that is contradicting to many words of, uh, many word in there, but all the words when it comes to being saved by grace through faith. It is perverting his holy word. Remember, I've said this time and time again, but if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, 99% for salvation, and then 1% in yourself. That 1% eliminates any kind of faith you have in Jesus Christ. Uh, there is no salvation. It cannot be Jesus Christ plus something or anything, guys. So it's Christ plus nothing for salvation. Baptism is to follow the commandment of Jesus Christ in a public profession and is necessary to be obedient to the Lord. It's not necessary in order to be saved. But it's necessary for a fruitful and joyful life. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone, anyone, everyone who calls on upon Jesus Christ in order to be saved and born again are saved and born again. Uh, you put any man on earth, he believes in his heart, and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, he's saved. Saved is, saved, 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 okay? So you're saved or not. Jesus Christ said, All the Father giveth uh, me shall come to me, and to him that cometh to me I will in no wise uh, cast out. 
So what if a man's in the desert and he has no water and he dies? Will he be cast out? What does the Bible say? I will in no wise cast out. Uh, if a man prays and means it from his heart, or a woman prays and she means it from her heart, uh, she shall be saved. They shall be saved. Uh, if they need to have baptism or to be saved, and they're in the middle of the desert and there's no water, you're telling me they can't be saved? Well, that's not being saved by grace through faith, my friend. It's that simple, that simple today. So the way to understand the parts that you do not understand the Word of God is to obey the parts that you do understand. And I'm hoping through this lesson here, which is a very simple lesson, that you understand uh, you know, the motive of baptism, it's the obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. The meaning of baptism is the burial of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the method is by full immersion to save born-again believers. Nowhere at all does Jesus Christ justify baptism through those who do not believe, biblical baptism, who, those who do not believe. Baptism is the biblical way that we can say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ, neither what he's done for me. Jesus said that if you love me, keep my commandments. He, again, ended his public ministry by commanding his disciples to go forward and preach the word of God, baptizing them. And uh, we need to understand that. So throughout this thought, guys, the evidence we, find, we have supplied has taught that biblical baptism is based upon biblical teachings through the correct method, the correct meaning, and the correct motive. Baptism is not a device to be utilized in carrying forth uh, the uh, carried forth a local church, but rather by the local church, uh, local New Testament church. The local church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, Matthew 16, 18, 1 Corinthians 3, 11, and many more, not upon the secessional pastoral baptism. But say all that to say this here today. I know we went a little bit longer with this lesson. Outline is, gonna, is on, your, um, on your Church One app there, Sermon Audio. Uh, if there's any questions concerning this, please let me know. But again, the challenge, is, the challenge is still the same. If you can take the Holy Scripture today and show me any verses that support baptism by sprinkling or pouring, that support baptism of infants or non-believers as way of being biblical and right, uh, then I'll recant everything that I've said. I'll recant what I believe. But I can promise you today, you'll never find it. You'll never find Jesus Christ teaching. Uh, for a lost person to be baptized, you'll never find Paul teaching the lost person to be baptized. You'll never find either one of them teaching infants to be baptized. Uh, you'll never find any one of them teaching baptismal regeneration or baptismal secession of the local church. You will always find, biblically speaking, in the perfect, pure Word of God, you'll always find the proper method by immersion, immersion only, the proper meaning as a public profession of salvation, the proper motive someone who is saved, born again of the blood of Christ, being baptized as obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, just to sum it up today, biblical baptism is by immersion for those who have made a proper biblical confession themselves on who and what the Lord Jesus Christ is, that he has saved their soul. Okay, and uh, so that's it. All right, I hope you guys have enjoyed this lesson. Looking forward to next week. We will finish up the two ordinances next week, which will be the Lord's table. It will not be that, that long. Uh, but I hope and pray this has been a blessing to you, and I look forward to seeing you in church on Sunday. God bless.